Primary immunodeficiency disorders, or PIDDs, affect all races and ethnicities, but certain groups have experienced greater social or economic barriers to diagnosis and treatment. The goal of the Moving Toward Equity podcast series is to raise awareness of the challenges, strategies, and resources for moving the needle toward equitable immunology care for all patients and practitioners in all communities. Welcome to the podcast series from the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. My name is Jerry Lee, and this is the final part of our three-part series entitled Moving Toward Equity, Disparities in Primary Immunodeficiency Disorders, or PIDDs. In this episode, we'll discuss improving access to treatment for PIDD in minority and underserved populations. To start this podcast, I first would like to hear from the patient experience of those who have experienced barriers in getting the diagnosis of our primary deficiency and also access to treatment. So we are very fortunate to be joined by Yvette and Jerry Shorten. Yvette is a mother of a child with primary immune deficiency, and Jerry is now post-transplant for severe combined immune deficiency. And they have graciously agreed to join us to talk about their experiences in obtaining the diagnosis and getting treatments for primary immune deficiency. So Yvette and Jerry, thank you for joining Allergy Talk today. You're welcome. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Jerry, for having us out. Overall, through your entire health journey, did you perceive any barriers to diagnosis, treatment, access to the healthcare system or health because of your race, due to because you are a person of color? I don't think so. I had one experience where I did feel that it was because of race, and this was going to one of the HMO clinics, and Jerry was three, and he had been very ill. He had been sick for a few days, and I'd taken him in to see the physician at the clinic, and he dismissed me. He told me that he's fine. He's had his transplant. You just need to go home, and, and he has an infection and get over it. And I'm telling him, I've watched him. He cannot stand. He does not play. He leans his head over. He's not eating. He still has fever. And he literally just dismissed me and walked out. And I, at that point, I felt as though, why is he doing this? Is it, is it because of our color? And he moved on to another patient. And that afternoon, I took Jerry to Texas Children and myself to the hospital. He, at that point, because of the antibiotics that he had received, it made it difficult to determine. But it was thought, he, well, he did have meningitis, but to determine if it was viral or bacterial, we were not able to. He was in the hospital for three weeks, and into that third week, they were ready to do another transplant because he was not getting better. When this could have been avoided if the doctor had just been more, I understand he's had a transplant and we need to stay on top of this. Let's get him to the emergency room and see what's going on. But he dismissed me, and at that point, I felt it was because of my color. And it's interesting you made that comment before, that that was a doctor that you were assigned based on your HMO? Yes. So it sounds like you also felt like the insurance and sort of the requirements of the insurance also was a barrier to getting the care that he needed. Yes. Both Yvette and Jerry Shorten have experienced challenges in access to treatment due to the social and economic barriers faced by patients with a PIDD. 
To learn about ways to advocate for our patients, we turn once again to our expert panel. Joining us today is Dr. Vivian Hernandez-Trujillo, Director of the Division of Allergy Immunology and the Fellowship Training Program Director at Nicholas Children's Hospital. Dr. Hernandez-Trujillo has been involved in Hispanic outreach for over 20 years, and she has partnered with both the Immune Deficiency Foundation and the ACAAI, as well as media, to increase awareness of PIDDs through programs in Spanish for healthcare professionals and patients on PIDs, and most recently on COVID. And Dr. Carla Davis, the Chief of Immunology, Allergy, and Retrobiology Section of the Department of Pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine at Texas Children's Hospital, and the Janie and Sandra Queen Endowed Chair in Immunology and HIV AIDS. Dr. Davis has been involved with the identification of health disparities in the field of allergy immunology and has formed research in primary immunodeficiencies for the past 20 years. Thank you once again for joining us, doctors. Great to be here, Jerry. Thank you for having us. And thank you so much to the college for actually addressing this much-needed discussion. And so for the focus of this episode, we want to talk a little bit about access to treatment. So let's start with you, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo. What are some of the treatments available for primary immunodeficiency disorders? As we've gotten better at diagnosing and had increased genetic diagnostic abilities, our treatments have also expanded. And for the sake of time, I'm going to keep it brief, but really there's many, many different treatments that exist for primary immune deficiency diseases. So starting with antibody deficiency disorders, the antibody replacement can be either intravenous immunoglobulin or subcutaneous immunoglobulin. For patients with T-cell disorders, such as severe combined immunodeficiency, the patients may be candidates for hematopoietic stem cell transplant, or in the case, for example, of adenosine deaminase deficient skid, they can be candidates for enzyme replacement. For patients with complete DeGeorge, thymic transplantation may be a treatment option. When we look at our patients with neutrophil disorders, they can be treated with prophylactic antibiotics, interferon gamma, or they may be candidates for hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. And then our patients with complement disorders, prophylactic antibiotics, and the use of vaccination with polysaccharide vaccines are essential. There's other types of primary immunodeficiency disorders which have been more recently understood, and biologic treatments and therapies are a treatment option, including CTLA-4 deficiency, for example, which is a form of CVID with severe autoimmunity, and then for autoinflammatory bowel disease where a abatacept or ctla for Ig is helpful. And then there's a host of other diseases, including autoimmune colitis, where the use of biologics, including infliximab, a TNF inhibitor, can help with disease control. So there's a wide variety of treatments, and it continues to expand as we better understand these diseases. Yeah, so it sounds like we have lots of treatment options, such as replacing immune globulin or the newer biologic therapies to help patients with primary immunodeficiencies. But Dr. Davis, what would be some of the barriers to receive some treatments like immune globulin or biologics? Well, after the diagnosis of primary immunodeficiency disease, patients can really experience a lot of difficulty coordinating their health care, and that can also result in a sense of isolation and some helplessness. 
because these are rare diseases, and unless we as healthcare providers connect them with other patients and families with resources that were addressed in the other podcasts with the Immune Deficiency Foundation, the Jeffrey Modell Foundation, the diagnosis can be, again, very isolating. So we've got to have culturally competent education uh, regarding the importance of these therapies, both the immunoglobulin as well as the biologic therapies, because the patients need to understand that controlling this disease is really important and delays might occur if the family doesn't really understand the critical nature of the treatment. So this can be a pretty big barrier. And as we know, in order to receive any of these therapies, there's an approval process that is necessary. And working with insurance companies can be daunting. It could require communication from the patient with the insurance company or having some kind of electronic medical record access, online access for communication, and they're not as prevalent in minority populations to exist, as well as there may be some time constraints regarding working during the day. Populations are less likely to have flexible work hour jobs, potentially less access to reliable transportation, and these are disparities that exist with regard to the ability to get this immune globulin and biologic therapies. We know that there are disparities with access to the Internet and electronic medical record services. So really, healthcare navigation, I would say, is, are some of the barriers to immune globulin and biologic treatment. Wow. So that's a lot of challenges, whether understanding the treatments you're receiving, actually affording the treatment, and navigating the system to receive the treatment. So for the individual clinician, what are some of the tools we can use to make sure our underserved minority patients get access to immunoglobulin or biologic therapies? Dr. Davis? Yeah, I think first, individual clinicians can ensure, as we've stated before, that there are no language or cultural barriers to the families or the patient's understanding of the diagnosis and available treatments. This includes assessing health literacy and then making sure that there is someone who is speaking with the family in their own native language. So culturally competent communication is super important. Having somebody who is trustworthy to develop that relationship. And then I would say the patient or their family should be connected to a patient healthcare navigator. It can be a nurse, a social worker, community health worker who could help the patient navigate this insurance approval process for these therapies. That's been very successful, and a person in the office can do this. Also, making appointments in advance with attention to transportation needs, being aware of financial hardships, and, and ensuring that appointments are available around work schedules can all facilitate access. Patients should also know in advance what copay assistance programs, financial resources are available. And there is a wonderful online resource called Aunt Bertha slash findhelp.org that is an online resource that can be used to help. So I would say that a patient healthcare navigator is a great way to help patients who have been diagnosed with PIDD get their appropriate treatment. Oh, what a wonderful resource to have an advocate for the patients who need them. Well, switching over to hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, Dr. Hernandez Trujillo, what would be some of the barriers in minority underserved populations to get a potential cure for their immune system disorder? So as we discussed previously, you know, one of the problems is that 
even in studies and in research, we really haven't included a wide variety of patients. And I think that's something that while some research regarding stem cell transplant in minority populations has been done, further studies truly are needed. There was one particular study where there were limited numbers of eight out of eight HLA allele matched unrelated donors for patients of non-European background. This included Asians, white Hispanics, Middle Eastern, and those of African ancestry as compared to Northwestern, Eastern, and mixed European ancestry. And that further highlights the disparities which is a barrier really for ethnic and racial minorities. And while they did see increasing participation in the bone marrow donor program, the disparities persisted. So that really is concerning. Studies investigating factors related to bone marrow donations, people said, you know, they were fearful, they weren't trusting. This is also associated with their intention not to want to donate bone marrow, again, an area of concern. And then the lack of educational resources in the patient's primary language actually further contributes to the barriers to hematopoietic stem cell transplant, as they may not even be aware of this as a treatment option for their primary immunodeficiency disease. And then the need to understand that they need to seek timely medical care, right? If we wait too long, if transplant happens, we know that if transplant happens before debilitating or life-threatening infection, then the outcomes will be better in our patients. So this is all information that really needs to be understood and the patients need to receive better education and understanding of this. Well, that's a lot of barriers as well, especially even the lack of finding a compatible immune system for transplantation. So how can we improve access to stem cell transplantation for minority and underserved populations? So as the population in the U.S. continues to grow in size and diversity, the increased understanding of the effects of availability of both unrelated donor and cord blood is really needed. So an expansion of cord blood registries with improved funding is really essential here. And as cord blood units from patients of African ancestry have lower total nucleated cell counts, we need to keep that in mind. There's an increased inventory of adequately dosed units from racially and ethnic diverse populations, which is necessary, especially in cord blood. And then improving access can be possible by increasing our efforts to educate the minority populations regarding the need to consider participation in bone marrow donor programs so that when a donor is needed, there's at least an increased likelihood that you're going to find one that's a better match. There's also different efforts that can occur, focusing efforts on education and discussion of the ability of donors to help others address concerns to dispel their fears related to the donation process. Again, the lack of trust of the healthcare system due to negative experiences in the past for different minority populations. This is really important. And then the mistrust of the healthcare system has to be addressed in Indigenous and Black patient populations. Dr. Davis had previously discussed this, you know, the need for staff cultural competency training, being aware of your own implicit bias, that's really necessary in order to be able to overcome that. And then having resources available in the patient's primary language, as we've discussed, at the appropriate literacy level or available in pictures or through audio or video, some patients may not be able to read at all. So having those available is also necessary. What are some of the resources you would recommend, not only to learn about the treatment of a primary immunodeficiency, but to help patients be encouraged to donate and potentially save a life who have a primary immunodeficiency? There's many resources that are available, as we've discussed previously, from the Immune Deficiency Foundation 
the Jeffrey Modell Foundation also has excellent resources, and they've done different campaigns at airports to increase basically diagnosis and just to educate the general public. And the IPOPI, the International Patient Organization for Primary Immunodeficiencies, has really wonderful resources. And these resources are available not only to patients and families, but also to clinicians. If you have access to up-to-date, there's different primary immunodeficiency topics that can aid the clinician in improving the diagnosis and treatment of patients with primary immunodeficiency disorders. And I highly encourage all clinicians to access those if they're available. Dr. Davis, is there any other resources you would recommend? Well, as mentioned by Dr. Hernandez Trujillo, really these great resources are available through the Immune Deficiency Foundation. One that I really like is the Diagnostic and Clinical Care Guidelines for Primary Immunodeficiency Diseases. It's a really helpful resource for clinicians. And as was mentioned previously, the Patient and Family Handbook describes the treatments for our patients, and that is extremely helpful. I would just remind everybody again about the practice parameter for the diagnosis and management of PID disease, as well as the workgroup report uh, update for the use of immunoglobulin in human disease. There's a really great article specifically and up-to-date called Primary Immunodeficiency Overview of Management. And so these would be really great to look at. Thank you, Dr. Davis. And from the patient's perspective, Yvette, do you have any resources you find helpful to help you and Jerry with managing a primary immunodeficiency? Well, most helpful for me, I did join the Primary Immune Deficiency Foundation, where we is for all primary immune deficiency, not just kids. But the Skid Compass is really great. Skid's Angels, they're good for those who have specific disease. But there's support groups for over, as I think it's over 400 different PI disease, that if you find the right one that fits you and your needs, it can be such a relief when you're going through different challenges or looking for different, even as far as insurance, how to maneuver and how to work with them and how to get the most benefits out of your, from your insurance agency. So all of that has been so helpful to me over the years. And I think it's been very helpful to Jerry. You know, we'd go to family retreats where you're around just everyone. You can feel free that everyone is like you. You're not out here standing alone. Everyone around you. They have experienced some of the same challenges that you have, and you can be free and be yourself and around them. Speak freely of what you're feeling, what you're going through. So I think that's been helpful. And finding the, the physician that you actually feel have a connection with, if you don't have a connection with this physician, maybe they're not the right one for you. Just have to be in tuned and more aware of what your needs are and and explain that need to your physician. Explain what you need to be more helpful to your son or daughter. And if that's something that cannot come together, then you may need to find another physician. But you have to do some of the lit work yourself as the parent. I think you have to really be involved in your child's care. And the physicians, I know they have many patients. They just have to be more aware and, and understand too some of what the patients and maybe it may be for them to say, I think this physician may be better for your needs and your family and pet and let them go to someone if they see that, you know, there's a not saying a conflict, but they're saying that things are just not matching that where they both 
they can give the best treatment and be, and the treatment can be received by the patient and the parents, the family, with no barriers. Because if you have that barrier where you're really not listening, I really don't trust them and I really don't think, you know, then you can't move forward with the best treatment for the patient. I see. Jerry, did you have any last words you wanted to share? You know, some things that my mom had said and then have some things I kind of want to add to it. So definitely having the right support group is really huge and being advocated and, you know, advocate yourself. I had a very strong family who's really supported me and really supported me in a way of what I needed because I was diagnosed at a, such a young age and going through so many different changes as a teenager, as a child, and, you know, being called different from everybody else that, that's at the same school. I needed that support group. And my mom and my dad and my sister and my family, just in general, really supported me and didn't make me feel any different and was there for me all the time. So then my mom introduced me to IDF. And IDF is a, is a community, like she said, that have other patients who have different other primary immune deficiencies. And that was a really uh, big relief because I didn't really feel alone. I didn't feel like I was the only one who had this diagnosis that I, that I realized that other people are, are dealing with this too. And they look normal. And they look, and they already, or somebody have the same condition I does. So it made me feel a little bit better about myself too as well, that I wasn't alone. For finding the right doctor, I think it's really huge. I was blessed to be born into a group of doctors who already had the experience of this particular condition. And so I didn't have to go out and do the research and find the right doctors, but I realized talking to other patients who have this, who have the condition like I do or something that's similar to it, they don't have the right doctor. And our doctors are looking at them like, no, you're fine. And, and they're really not fine. So uh, definitely getting the right support and finding the right doctor, it's going to be really critical to help you through this journey. I really appreciate everyone listening in and being motivated to help patients with these very rare but curable disorders and to make sure everyone has access to the best possible outcome in treatment of their primary immunodeficiency. So this will conclude part three of our three-part series on moving toward equity, disparities, and primary immunodeficiencies from the ACAAI. For more resources about PIDD, again, that website is education.acaai.org disparities. And for more interesting episodes from Algae Talk, please visit us at college acaai.org slash algae talk and to receive CME credit visit education.acaai.org slash algae talk again this is Dr. Jerry Lee I'm from the American College of Allergy Asthma and Immunology thank you so much for your time and enjoy the rest of your day <music> <laughs>